Episode 18, Hebrews 11, Faith, and What in the World is Going on in America, Part A. Rethinking the Bible with Jack Pelham. Welcome to Rethinking the Bible. This is an audio podcast where we apply reality-based thinking to interpreting the Bible. Reality-based thinking is my name for a philosophy that seeks to make constant use of honesty, rationality, and responsibility in seeking out the reality of things while trying to avoid common errors. And for the record, I define reality as the state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to one's perceptions, beliefs, or wishes about them. And you should know, this is a serial podcast, so it's best if you start from episode one and work your way forward from there, because we lay some foundational principles up front, and you'll be lost later if you skip them now. Well, I feel I should start today with an apology for our extended absence. The family took a vacation for almost three weeks. We took a road trip across the country to see our families in Tennessee and Florida. We had a good time with that. Very glad we went. Uh, We're also glad to be back, of course. Being away from home for that amount of time is difficult. And if for nothing else, it's difficult for missing the podcast. Uh, Strangely, we had... um, Uh, or strangely, I say, perhaps the word should better be uh, amusingly, we had decided we would take a microphone with us so that we could record in the car. But we made a poor choice on which uh, choice, on which mic to take. And the one we chose ended up with a great amount of road noise that we could not remove through our special uh, noise reduction magic in the recording software we use. So it would have been untenable to uh, try to listen to that. In retrospect, we could have taken different microphones, the ones that, um, the SM58s that that every rock band in the world uses. We would have looked like a rock band going down the road, each holding our mics as we were talking. And that would have been fun. I actually wish we had done that. Uh, Next time we will know. And that would have worked much better. So as a result, we have left you hanging for a very long time. Uh, It has also, though, uh, left us the opportunity to reflect more and more on where we're going. I really would like to sort of turn a corner with this podcast. So let me talk about that for a couple of minutes, and then we will uh, talk a bit about where we're going, why we've started as we have, and then also we'll get into um, the actual episode today. And uh, on that note, let me say that uh, my mood is a little bit suppressed It's been a very heavy couple of weeks with what's going on politically in the United States. I don't trust the mainstream media uh, to tell us the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So I've been doing lots and lots of research on the side, looking at alternative sources, which themselves are often troubling or dubious or whatever. So uh, anyway, I'm very concerned about what's been going on in the country, and uh, that actually has a lot to do with today's uh, subject and why I wanted to get into this. Uh, So I hope it doesn't show too much in my mood. These are, of course, sobering times, so I don't mind being sober. Uh, I'm not giddy today. Uh, So anyway, I thought we'd take a look at uh, Hebrews 11. And uh, 
so let me step back a minute before we get into that. Uh, again, and you've heard me say this before, my goal in this podcast is to get people thinking about the Bible where they're doing their own thinking. Uh, that is, as opposed to simply having somebody else tell you what it says or what it means or something along those lines. The idea that we would be doing our own thinking, I think, is what God wants. And again, you know, he says things like, come let us reason together, not come let me reason and tell you what the reasons are. <laughs> uh, so God wants people thinking together with him or with his scriptures, that sort of thing. And so uh, I see a lot of not thinking going on in the country. My research in cognitive science on why is it so hard to correct anybody has made it very plain that we live in an epidemic of irrationality or what uh, Keith Stanovich calls disrationalia. And he defines that as something in this ballpark that uh, someone has the mental faculties, the mental capability of reasoning uh, rationally, and yet they're not utilizing that. So they're being disrational, uh, even though they have the means to do better. And I see that all over. The standard uh, four-part or four-question little quiz that I've been uh, putting out for a few years, most people score between zero and 25% correct out of 100% uh, total, uh, which is normal <laughs> to have 100% that you can get right on a test. So most people score between zero and 25%. Uh, indeed, when I first took, or when I first, I didn't first take this test because I put this test together from questions I had found in the literature, uh, but when I first ran across these questions myself in my own reading, remember, I got 25% of them right. And this was very troubling to me, as well it should have been, because I'm cool like that. I am concerned about the state of my own thinking, and I wish everybody would be uh, concerned about the state of their thinking, too. But uh, remember, I was getting about three-quarters of them wrong, and the irony of it was, here I am trying to write a book about how to help people think better when I realized, oops, my own thinking is not uh, habitually rational. And I have biases or bad mental habits that get in the way of me getting the answers right a lot. So, oh boy, what are we going to do about that? And so that really turned a big corner in my life as far as my own self-awareness went, uh, I, as I, I think I previously shared in uh, a very recent episode that I was emotionally very self-aware, but I was not cognitively very self-aware. I could tell you what I would, would feel about a thing, but I could not tell you uh, in my thinking necessarily how I had always derived my answers, uh, whether I had vetted my answers, my beliefs, my decisions about things, or... Uh, you know, if, if so, how well vetted they were. I was not doing well with that. And as a result, I said a bunch of dumb junk that I now regret that I said. And, uh, but hey, you know, don't, don't we all. <laughs> so uh, you, you kind of have to take 
take the black eye from that and let it be that, uh, yeah, earlier in my life, I was not as wise as I am now. And of course, in a few more years, I'm going to be able to say that same thing again about today now, aren't I? So I think my role in all of this, of course, I'm inventing my own role. It's my podcast. But here's how I see my role. I would like to help people think about the Bible a lot and to uh, help facilitate that, to make it easier for you, to give you some stuff to think about. And again, I don't think I'm going to be right about everything I believe about the Bible. I am absolutely certain that I used to be even less right about what I thought about the Bible in previous years, and I can now show you lots of reasons. And this is something I do notice a lot as I discuss with people. Uh, Lots of discussions go this way. Well, Jack, I think this. And I'll say, hmm, okay. Well, I don't see it that way. I see it this way, and here's why. And then uh, when I ask them questions about their way of seeing it, they often cannot answer. They might say, well, uh, you know, I've always seen it that way, or, well, this is the way I choose to see it or to believe it. I'm like, okay, but can you explain this about your model of belief? Or can you explain that about the, 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 the scenario that you're, you're painting? And oftentimes they cannot. And again, and I've bewailed this before on this podcast, oftentimes people will uh, tell themselves or even tell me that they're going to come back with answers. Oh, I'll, I'll, I'm just not prepared right now, but I'll look into this and I'll get back to you with answers. Well, they don't normally show up with answers. In fact, they often get very, very quiet. And this will be an ongoing theme of mine for quite some time. I'm working on this idea of abandoned trails, how people think about a thing and then they, for some reason, just stop themselves from doing it and they don't pursue it any further. So they do not trace things out to the natural ends. They do not find the natural consequent uh, conclusions of a matter because they stop the process. It is as if they turned off the coffee maker before it had all percolated, percolated, percolated. The latter is the right one. I wondered whether I said it right the first time or not. But they uh, turn off the computer before it's done doing the search. Or they uh, you know, do things, some of these are metaphors, of course. But they stop themselves searching. And today, our study actually will bear out a little bit of this as we talk about Hebrews 11 and some of the things in there that mean stuff that you won't know if you've never searched out the rest of the Bible regarding these things. And so you'll think that Hebrews 11 is just a really good rip-roaring chapter on having faith, and you'll have no idea that the writer is hearkening back to one thing after another after another that are rooted in the Old Testament. And if you were thinking that, you would realize, oh, wait a minute, Here's a verse in Hebrews 11 that I can't find anywhere in the Old Testament. Hmm, what that might what might that be about? And so there are clues like that. You'll totally miss it though if you're not the investigator, if you're not the examiner. And uh, when things like this come up, uh, people tend to shut themselves off. And we again we've talked about that. You're shutting me out. You're shutting me down. Now you're shutting down. All these kind of terms 
um, even the cognitive miser term that comes from cognitive science where they notice that hmm, people tend to do a minimum of algorithmic reflective thinking. They don't mind telling you what immediately pops into mind, and often that's the best you can get. But they're not going to sit and think a thing through, investigate it through, examine it, analyze it, check the sources, check their own logic, check the facts, list their assumptions, this kind of due diligence, these sort of best practices and standards. They don't do that. They're very, very sloppy. And I notice this same sloppiness, of course, in all the discussions about politics today. Uh, well, what's going on? Is the president... Uh, is he going to be impeached? Is he going to uh, resign? Is he going to hand over power peacefully? Is he going to uh, have the army arrest all the traitors? And there's all these different versions of, of that. And I notice uh, people are very quick to hypothesize that, oh, did you see what so-and-so did? Well, what that really means is this, that, or the other thing. And some of that may well be right. Uh, however, as I've tried my best to follow along, I see that people are generally pretty sloppy in how they do this kind of mental work. They don't check out their facts. I've, I've had friends writing Facebook posts. Oh, well, here's what's going on today, blah, blah, blah. And I go look into it like, no, that's not uh, true. Over here, you're abusing a word. Over there, you're misquoting. Uh, this kind of thing is just very, very sloppy. Well, uh, why should we examine the Bible if we're going to be sloppy about it? Why should we draw any conclusions about the Bible if we are sloppy thinkers? Who would want the fruit of our labors in that way? Oh, it's a bit like uh, kindergarten refrigerator art. Here, Mommy, here's a, uh, a picture I drew for you. And you know what's going on in the refrigerator. Well, what is it, Junior? Oh, well, it's a dog. Oh, okay. <laughs> it doesn't look like a dog because it's sloppy. We're not that good at it yet in kindergarten, perhaps. Maybe some of you were. Uh, but... You expect that to be sloppy, and you love it for reasons other than the quality of the art itself. You love it because, hey, this is my kid, or this is a gift from my kid, or, well, this is my a snapshot of where my kid is at this time in his uh, development in the world of artistic, artistic renderings of dogs, right? So uh, I'm not getting uh, going off on refrigerator art here. But my point is, we are indeed a very sloppy society. If you were to take our typical Facebook posts and proofread them for errors, you'd have to get out that red pen if you're the teacher and mark it all up and probably put a pretty nasty grade up top. Uh, so I think that's the same way that we tend to read the Bible. And woe to us for that. What a mess that makes. And so the way I see my role here is, could I just get you to think better about the Bible as we wrestle with it to try to understand these words that were written down uh, thousands of years ago by people in a different culture, time, place, circumstance, language, and so forth.
it's a tall order. And we swim at our own risk. We work at our own peril here, at the peril of our own interpretations being uh, off. And, of course, this should be nothing new to you. Perhaps this is me just, uh, just venting more and more on the same kind of theme, and yet it is such a timely theme because we can see that our minds are not very well honed. We are not keen on how we make decisions, how we develop hypotheses and test them, and how we develop our beliefs. It is quite a mess. And in politics, is uh, really no different from religion. In fact, I had thought about reading you uh, some Facebook posts today that I have written recently uh, on my way out of Facebook, actually. But then um, perhaps I'll do that soon in another uh, podcast very quickly. Uh, one of them says, uh, in, uh, as in politics, so in religion. And I talk about how people make poor judgments in the one and they hold up a standard. They say, oh, um, the, the uh, Constitution is the supreme law of the land. And then yet they support a party that, that violates the Constitution quite often. And they don't see any problem with this. Well, they do the same thing in religion. Oh, Jesus is Lord, they say. And, and they should know that this is the same Lord who very famously said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and yet not do what I say? But they'll call him Lord and then continue on in various uh, practices or sins or ignorant things that they do, they do in their churches and never really give it a second thought. And so uh, let me bring this back around here. I don't think that that's what God had in mind when he created humans to be in his likeness and in his image. And we're going to talk about that some today. The reason that I want to, um, I'm sort of in a hurry if you can't tell, and which is funny because we will never finish the Bible. Uh, I could live another hundred years. We would never finish going through and learning and relearning and correcting and improving our positions on the Bible and what it means. Uh, even if we had a, another hundred years to do it, and even if I could, um, could do a podcast every day, it's just not going to happen. It is not the nature of the world into which God has set us that we're going to be able to master all the material. It seems to me to be a test of uh, how we will prioritize things and what we'll make of it and how honest and rational and responsible we'll be with the time that we have. But um, I think that people's reading of the Bible is often superficial. Often they miss what's there. They certainly miss clues to where the Bible tries to bring up something else that's already in the scriptures elsewhere. And this is because they don't read it extensively. They don't realize, hey, wait a minute, this language right here, that sounds familiar. It would sound familiar had they read the other passages, but they have not, so they don't get it. And they don't realize that that writer has given you a clue that he wants you also to have in mind this other passage that was written earlier by somebody else. So they miss that. But then they also go off on their same theories, their hypotheses about things. And we've talked about that, like the, the discussion between John and Jesus, where um, Jesus questions Peter, I'm, I'm sorry, between Peter and Jesus, where 
Jesus questions Peter three times, and somebody says, aha, Peter had denied Jesus three times. Ergo, uh, these three questions must be the direct response to that. And there you go. There's a neat little package. But actually, we've you know, already discussed how there's much more meaning in those questions, and it's not the same question every time. And so there's much more than meets the eye. Hence, the advice from Jesus that he once gave, uh, even to Pharisees, he said, uh, stop judging by mere appearances and instead make a right judgment. And so that's what I hope we can do with the Bible. And so here I go waxing on and on about um, this in my introductory remarks. What I'm going to do today is to get into Hebrews 11. I think a lot of Christians uh, are very troubled about what's going on in the country today. And I think a lot more of them should be very troubled about what's going on in the country today. And I'm not talking uh, what the Democrat on the street thinks and what the Republican thinks. I'm talking about struggles that are going on with what I think is globalist big money concerns who want to use the United States for their own purposes rather than to let us be a union of free and independent states where people can live with a lot of freedoms and a lot of trust being put in them to run their own lives and all this sort of thing. I think that people uh, that we don't study would like to take over this country, and they're trying to do it through some particularly bad actors who have gotten themselves into politics at the national level and who will end up not pleasing the Democrats and not pleasing the Republicans either. I think we've been duped. I think that we can't trust the media to tell us the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And so we have a very hard time finding out what time it is, what's really going on. And again, if we don't study things, if we don't study history, if we don't study the Constitution, how in the world would we ever know that something is amiss? Other than just, well, I don't like that. <laughs> and, well, that's a pretty shallow way of judging things. So again... That title from my little Facebook post, something like, as with religion, so with politics, or vice versa. I forget which way I put it. But, um, so anyway, that, I think that's certainly enough to bring us down to Hebrews 11. Why this chapter? Well, that's a very good question, and that tests me too. In fact, I have not written out anything for this. I did highlight a few words and so I am sorry in my rush to get back to this that I have not had time to prepare something more. So today you can just consider a discussion of Hebrews 11. It's a bit off the cuff with a little bit of reflection ahead of time. But again, I hope it's good for you. I Obviously, we could go through and pick apart sentence by sentence and look into the Greek extensively and compare versions and then try to track down every tie there is to the rest of the Bible. And wouldn't that be great? But I'm not ready for that today. And yet I think we can use this as a bit of a primer on how, many, uh, on how to do that kind of thing. So uh, these will be fast and ready references today, a rather casual take on it. Otherwise, we could probably spend a couple of podcasts on just chapter 11, uh, maybe two or three or four even, just trying to break it down piece by piece and to follow all the stories back because this chapter mentions a bunch of previous stories in the Old Testament. So uh, hopefully there's some things in there you haven't thought about. 
And hopefully I give you a lot of trails that you can go chase down yourself and hopefully not abandon those trails uh, mid-pursuit like we so often tend to do. And if that happens to you, well, hey, it happens to me. So this is not me condemning you. Oh, you're a bad person because you have not followed through on every biblical trail you've ever wanted to uh, pursue and investigate. No, I realize in the real world there are difficulties with time management and all that. And yet we do sometimes end up getting distracted off in the shallow end of the pool. And before you know it, we've spent several weeks not really digging into much of anything at all, but just digging into some fluff or repeating things or, you know, reading just for devotional, God, please help me have a better mood today kind of uh, things rather than really getting into the meat. So I think uh, with that, uh, whether I have anything further to say or not, I ought to not do it just so that we don't end up with an hour's worth of introduction here. So I'm going to click over here and look, I'm today I'm reading mostly from the, uh, new international version. And then I have uh, standing by here in parallel, the English standard version version. And just so you know what I'm doing, I'm at BibleGateway.com. That's how I chose to, to look at these passages today. I pulled them up in parallel, side by side, so I could look at these two versions. I made a few highlights as to words I wanted to talk about or phrases I want to talk about. And the gamble there is that I will remember when I get to those highlights what it is I had in mind <laughs> to say. So uh, think of this as us reading through this together. I'm going to read the full text and talk about it all. And then uh, whatever it reminds me of, provided that I think either we have enough time or that it's not so big a topic that we had dare not get into that just yet. And so I have to warn you, there may be a couple of ties in here to pretty big, juicy topics that would be fantastic to get into uh, and I'm telling myself now I'm not going to, but we'll see what I actually do when we get down to the moment. So here we go. Uh, this is Hebrews, uh, obviously a New Testament book, and this is uh, written by we don't know who. Uh, some people like to think it's Paul. Other people point out mm, the style here is different from Paul considerably. It doesn't make sense. And so there's all kind of um, theories on who had done it. Uh, one friend thinks it's Silas. Uh, perhaps, who who knows? Perhaps it was. Uh, so uh, anyway, here we are in the middle of a, of a big, long letter. And boy, if you are not a Hebrew uh, in the second century, I mean, the first century when this was written, if you were not a well-trained, a, a well-read Jew, you had no idea what this letter was about. And... Uh, if that's true for them then, <laughs> just think what trouble you and I are in, my fellow Americans. Uh, because if we are not well-versed and well-read uh, in the ancient Near Eastern scriptures and in, in the, in the Bible documents and then documents that, for whatever reason, did not get in the Bible collections that we have today, uh, if you don't know this stuff, you have very little idea what Hebrews is talking about. And so this is not a commentary on the whole book. We're not starting at the beginning. This is somewhat topical because uh, 
we could do anything and it and then have some value in, in showing uh, the kind of thinking we need to do as we're rethinking the Bible. But I think because it's timely that some people should be feeling the sting of being unique in your thinking compared to the world around you. And that's a theme that's going on here in this chapter and in the whole book of Hebrews. And so uh, I don't know, this is not exactly a sermon, but this may be more sermony than anything else I've done so far. So here we go. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, New International Version I'm reading, and I will uh, put a link to what I've got here in the show notes so you could look at the same thing yourself uh, while we discuss, if you'd like to do that. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Okay, i got to tell you right now, this is a difficult passage. What in the world does this mean? Different versions handle it different ways. Uh, for example, the uh, English Standard Version, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Okay, well, what do you mean, Mr. Author of Hebrews, or Miss or Mrs. Author, whoever it might have been? What do you mean? Well, uh, let me talk about a couple of things. One, my understanding of this word hope is not, it's not a wish. I hope, in, in Bible terms, is often a thing that we expect because it has been promised. So that's different from I wish for a pony for my birthday uh, because most of us have zero expectation for a pony. We know better. Yes, you, you might wish for one, but you know you're not getting a pony. Well, this is not about wishing. This is about what they had been promised. And so they're saying faith is being confident in what we've been promised, that it's going to happen. This is my expectation. That's what this word hope means. And we're assured about what we do not yet see. Or, uh, you know, the other, the um, English standard, it's a conviction about things not seen. And you're going to see this theme played out throughout this chapter. So the rest of the chapter helps you understand this verse 1 uh, later. And we'll get back to that. Hopefully I'll remember it when we get to it. But these people had been promised. And I'm, when I say these people, I mean all the Bible people from Adam and Eve all the way up to when this was written. They had been promised some things. And they were confident in it. They had conviction. They were assured about what was going to happen. And actually, this made a very special class of people that God would recognize separately from the other people on the planet. In fact, uh, going on to verse 2, this is what the ancients were commended for. Or in the English standard, for by it, that is by faith, the people of old received their commendation. So they were commended already by God in the past tense of when this was written. Verse 3, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command. Well, i got to stop you right here. Uh, this is some pretty lousy translating. This word universe, it also appears in the English Standard Version. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God. Uh, well, the word in Greek is not 
cosmos, which is what you would expect for a universe. It's not the world, the word they use for world sometimes. It's the word aeon, uh, or ion. It's where we get our word eon, or ages, age. So it, it says here in the Greek, we understand that the ages were formed at God's command. Well, that's entirely different from the universe. The stuff you can see with a telescope, including the ground that you can look down to at your feet and the sun, the moon, and the stars and the clouds and the nebulae. So uh, <laughs> these two versions are trying to help us, but this is not helping. So it really helps to, to take a peek at the Greek from time to time on the key words and see what's being talked about. God had created some ages. You'll learn more about ages if you study the word ages and, and get more complicated and go in and study the word uh, ion. In the Greek, which you can do at blueletterbible.com, you can punch in Hebrews 11, verse 3. You can click on the word for universe there and see what Greek word it was, and then you can click on that word and see where else it was used. So this is a very basic Bible tool that's super helpful. And so you can go read all about the ages, and you should, because there's a lot to be learned in the New Testament that you'll never learn at church because they just don't go there. But here, there's a ton to be learned. So we understand by faith, uh, I'm sorry, by faith we understand that the universe, the ages, uh, was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is one where I'm uh, fairly resolute. I don't want to follow down this entire trail. What does it mean that what was seen was not made out of what was visible? Uh, I'm not fully prepared to get into that today, but I know it's a big can of worms. And uh, for a lot of people, it's not. Oh, yeah, God made everything um, out of nothing. Well, wait a minute. And that's called the ex nihilo um, idea of creation. And, of course, they'll apply this that God created the universe and such. But here it doesn't say it was made out of nothing. It says it's made out of what was not visible. So, or, or, I'm sorry, that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Well, okay, what does that mean? So, uh, so I beg your pardon, but we're going to leave this uh, for another day and keep going on. Now, here's where it starts getting uh, really juicy and what I do want to talk about somewhat. Verse 4, by faith, Abel, remember he was a uh, son of Adam and Eve, and uh, he was killed by his brother Cain. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous. Okay, here you have the Bible calling a human righteous. I think we can take the Bible's word for that. <laughs> this is a really good commendation. Uh when God spoke well of his offerings. So here's a guy being judged by God in the affirmative. I like this guy. He's righteous based on what he offered to God. So God here is, is basically passing judgment on Abel based on Abel's behavior. And I think this is a theme that's common throughout the Bible. A lot of people don't like that idea. They say, no, no, God judges everybody 
only by whether God loves Jesus or not. And of course, he loves Jesus, so God loves everybody. And God, uh, everybody passes the judgment. They all get a star uh, for just existing or something like this. But no, no. Uh, the theme in the Bible is all over the place that God does judge people by what they've done while in the body, while living as humans, whether good or bad. And I'm referring to 1 Corinthians 5, verse 10. Does that sound about right? And so he goes on. So God did commend Abel, uh, the, particularly about this sacrifice that he made. He gave from the best, where it appears that Cain did not give of his best. And God saw that. And God says, yeah, this guy is righteous. This guy gets it. And we're going to talk about that throughout this chapter. This guy gets it. Not everybody gets it. Abel did. And so here's something intriguing. And by faith, I'm going on now near the end of uh, verse 4. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> What's that about? Have you ever thought through this? Have you ever gone to look it up and see what in the world is the author of Hebrews here referring to? You know, there's a passage where Jesus says something about Abel. And I did look that up earlier because I'm cool like that. Uh, <laughs> or rather, because I have burned myself already too many times in this, uh, having to stop the recording and go look something up and then come back. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 23, 35, and I'm just jumping in the middle. He says, and so upon you, he was, uh, he was preaching to or at, you could say, rebuking uh, some people at that time. Uh, but anyway, he, he goes on, and so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Well, I don't think it was going well for these people that Jesus was having this discussion with. Apparently they're being uh, having some murders pinned on them and not just the one that they actually murdered but all the blood from the very beginning of murder, Abel, killed by Cain, up until then. So, oh boy, this is some serious business Jesus is talking about. And uh, so now I'm going to go back over to Hebrews 11, where we were. And he says, and by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. Well, what in the world is that about? Well, I could tell you what that's about, but uh, you might get in trouble and I might get in trouble. <laughs> this is a reference to something that a bunch of uh, well-educated, well-read Jews in the first century knew about, but that we don't know about today. It comes from a book that many of them knew, knew very well, read, talked about. It's even quoted in the Bible. Uh, in one super famous flagrant passion uh, uh, passage, rather, this is the book of Enoch. I'm going to read you just a tad. Uh, this is one Enoch or the book of Enoch. And uh, there's a discussion in chapter 22. Now, you can find this online in several places. Just go look up uh, one Enoch online. And you, you can find places where you can read it. And there's a couple of different translations out there. But um, in this one place, Enoch is 
being guided around by angels looking at this or that. And they start to look at the underworld. And uh, so I'm going to, I'm just going to read you a bit. This is uh, 1 Enoch uh, chapter 22, starting from verse 1. And from there I went to another place, and he showed me, he being the angel, he showed me in the west a large and high mountain and a hard rock and four beautiful places. And inside it, and inside it was deep, wide, and very smooth. How smooth is that which rolls and deep and dark to look at? Then Raphael, one of the holy angels who was with me, answered me and said, These beautiful places are there so that the spirits, the souls of the dead, might be gathered into them. For them they were created so that here they might gather the souls of the sons of men. Now, if you are a Bible student but don't ever read beyond the Bible, your impression of uh, Sheol or Hades is probably that there are two places in Hades. Uh, and you're getting this from the Gospels and from Jesus' uh, parables about uh, the Lazarus and the rich man. And uh, you're seeing that, oh, a great chasm has uh, split this side off from that side and nobody can cross. And they're suffering over there and, and everything's fine over here in Abraham's bosom. That's what you're getting. Uh, and I think that's true and that's consistent with this passage but it's only part of the story. There's more to it than that. And so here he goes on, he says, this, these four places that you see, not just two, four, they are for the sons of men, the, to gather the souls of them or the spirits of them. And going on, I'm in verse four now of 1 Enoch 22. And these places they made uh, where they will keep them until the day of judgment, until their appointed time, and that appointed time will be long until the great judgment comes upon them. So this is something that was written uh, way early in the Bible timeline. And it says this will be a long time until this thing happens. And I, going on, verse 5, And I saw the spirits of the Son of Men who were dead, and their voices reached heaven and complained. Now think about Abel here. And I asked Raphael, the angel who was with me, and said to him, Whose is this spirit? The voice thus reaches heaven and complains. And he answered me and said to me, saying, This spirit is the one that came out of Abel, whom Cain, his brother, killed. And he will complain about him until his offspring are destroyed from the face of the earth. And from amongst the offspring of men, his offspring perish. Then I asked about him, and about judgment on all. And I said, why is one separated from another? And he said to me and said, these three places were made. And now remember there's four, but now he's talking about three of them. These three places were made in order that they might separate the spirits of the dead. And thus the souls of the righteous have been separated. And this is the spring of water and on it, the light. And oh boy, what's he talking about there? Well, we'll have to get into that later. Uh, likewise, a place has been created for sinners when they die and are buried in the earth and judgment has not come upon them during their life. And here their souls will be separated for this great torment until the great day of judgment and punishment and torment for those who curse forever and of vengeance on their souls. And there he will bind them forever. Verily, he is from the beginning of this world. And thus, he's looking now to a fourth one, a place has been separated for the souls of those who complain 
and give information about their destruction, about when they were killed in the days of the sinners. This isn't about Enoch here. I mean, not Enoch, but about uh, Abel. Thus, a place has been created for the souls of men who... uh, Oh, he's moving on to the next one. Uh, So let me stop here in verse 12. And thus a place has been separated for the souls of those who complain. Remember, Jesus says, Abel's blood cries out from the ground. He's complaining and giving information about his destruction. Another version, I think, talks about about his manner of death, uh, about which they were killed in the days of sinners. So what's going on here, what a first century Jew would have known, is that they thought there were people in Hades who had been wrongly killed, who were filing suit with God about against their killers. And God was going to hear this out on the day of judgment. That's what they thought. And I'll give you a little hint before I leave this passage here, that there were four chambers in Hades. One is for the righteous. One is for those making suit. This would be Abel. So Abel did not take his place among the righteous, although we know he's righteous because the Bible tells us so. But he didn't take his place among them. Rather, he's making suit. And as of the day that Jesus said these things and the Hebrews, uh, the Hebrews was talking about, he was still making a suit about his manner of death and wanting judgment upon Cain, who had killed him. Okay, then you had a section for the sinners... Uh, and another one for a special group of sinners whose uh, whose sin it says or whose transgression was complete. So the one group of sinners are those who had not been judged during their life. The other one was ones who had. Think about Korah and his rebellion. God didn't wait for them to die. He just had the ground open up and suck them down. Think about Ananias and Sapphira. Bam, you're dead. Uh, This is not a normal thing. In the New Testament, God did indeed execute judgment on some living people. And they went to this place because they were judged in their lifetime and they were complete in their transgression. In my understanding, they would go to be the eternal roommates of Satan. The others, uh, some of these people wouldn't, and you'll have to go read this yourself. I'm just giving you an introduction here. And boy, you may find this like, radically crazy. No, that can't be true, Jack. But you go read it for yourself. You'll find that uh, those who were sinners but were not complete in their transgression, and of course God is the judge of whose transgression is, quote, complete or not. Those who were not complete, he was going to snuff them out in the judgment. They would have a time of suffering, and then they would be snuffed out. They're gone. They're done. They're over. They no longer exist as people, as spirits. Their body's already dead. This is twice dead now, right? This is the second death. So they're gone. The ones who were complete in transgression, the way I understand it, they get to go be Satan's roommates forever in the lake of fire. Eternal conscious torment forever and ever and ever. Well, okay. Maybe you've never heard of annihilationism, and that's the idea that the spirit of man, uh, or of the wicked, does indeed get snuffed out. Maybe you have heard of that. Some people have figured out annihilation from the Bible. 
not looking into extra biblical works that the Bible people would have known and, and would have often believed. Uh, some people never figure it out. Uh, some people say, no, it's all annihilation. He just turns everybody off and there's no eternal life. There's just all kind of positions people take on this. But what you don't get if you don't know one Enoch is there were not just two uh, sections in Hades, in Sheol, in the underworld. There were four. And uh, some sinners are going to suffer and then be turned off, no longer to exist. Some will suffer forever, along with Satan and his angels, in the lake of fire. And then the trials will be heard for those who complain about their manner of death, like Abel. Uh, that was to be settled. And then those who were righteous, well, they were uh, to be let out and to end up in the holy city with God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So there's something, if you're looking for cool stuff to look into, uh, maybe I've just blown the doors off your car. But when the Hebrews writes about this, his audience already knows these stories. They knew that stuff. It's us who don't. The American churchers, we don't know anything. We don't read this stuff. We don't even like the Old Testament. In fact, in the New Testament, well, where's the red letters? I really like those, right? So there is so much more here than meets the eye. And so uh, the point is, uh, by faith, Abel brought, this is back in verse 4 of Hebrews 11, by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, he still speaks. As of the time this was written, Abel's blood still crying out from the ground. And we'll discuss later whether uh, that has since changed or, or whether it's, we're still in the same uh, time and status as they were then. That's a different topic for a different day. And there are people who believe either way, just so you know. Uh, so we'll discuss that later. Verse 5. By faith, Enoch, now funny, we just read about Enoch uh, or you know, from his own book. Uh, Enoch was taken from this life so that he did not experience death. Think about that. How many people did that happen to in the Bible? There were two. One's Enoch, one is Elijah. Both taken up, God took them, God liked them, <laughs> he took them, and we're not told much about them later. I will tell you, though, that I believe that Enoch and Elijah would be the two prophets of the Revelation, the ones who were killed in the Holy City, and left to be dead for three days and then raised again on the third day. And why do I believe it's these two? Well, if you look elsewhere in Hebrews where it says it is appointed for man to live, uh, to die but once, and then the judgment, well, these are the only two guys who never died, and then they'd get sent back as these two witnesses from heaven to earth. They would preach, they'd get killed, and then they'd be raised again. So this would be, they get to die one time, having not died previously like everybody else, including Jesus, whoever was on the earth. So that's my reasoning there. And again, I hope you can see we're kind of opening some doors today into further investigations. And this is why I think it's so important that we have to be predetermined that we're going to be honest and rational and responsible with our beliefs about the Bible Otherwise, you just end up believing whatever you want. 
well, I feel uncomfortable believing that, Jack. I think I'll believe this instead. It's like, well, okay, but there's evidence for this. Uh, maybe my conclusions are wrong. Fine. Can you show me more evidence or can you show me how I'm misinterpreting the evidence? Let's have some sort of evidentiary uh, way of judging these things and not just, well, I don't feel comfortable with that. So uh, Enoch was taken from this life. This is verse five. Uh, so that he did not experience death. And it's going to quote here. Uh, he could not be found because God had taken him away. For before he was taken, he was commended as one who pleased God. And without faith, now the writer's going to, okay, let's, <laughs> let's make a grand point about faith itself after having raised Enoch's example. And without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Now, a lot of twisted church business, there are a lot of people who don't earnestly seek God who are being told to expect being rewarded in a good way by God at the judgment. But here, the requirements are two. You have to believe that he exists and that there's a reward for those who earnestly seek him. So if you're going to get that reward, how are you going to get it without earnestly seeking God, without seeking these things out, trying to understand the Bible, understand what he meant, trying to live this way, trying to live in the image and the likeness of God? And, and the point we're going to be making here along the way is this kind of behavior that this chapter is commending, this is not normal behavior. This is unusual stuff. This is unlike this world. It is not the way of this world. These are people who show that they are different because they're reading a different story than the average guy on the street. These people have something different in mind, and so they're going to live differently. And so it says uh, about, um, about Enoch, uh, without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. How interesting for somebody to end up face to face with God and saying, well, how come you're not going to let me into heaven? And God says, well, you didn't earnestly seek me. And they'd say, well, but I had faith, though. And God's like, OK, I didn't see your faith in what you did. Well, I read Hebrews chapter 11 and I believe that you exist. And God says, yeah. And did you read to the end of that sentence? That the people I reward are those who earnestly seek me. This is why I wanted to cover so much about this kind of heart and pure mind before we get into the deeper things about the Bible, the things that are more connected. So going on to verse 7 in Hebrews 11, By faith Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, Think about that. Remember, I told you we'd go back to verse 1, where it says that faith is the uh, confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. Well, Noah had been warned about things that he had not seen yet, namely a flood. And so when warned about thing not things, uh, things not seen, in holy fear he built an ark to save his family. Well, let me just stop right here and talk about a little bit about Bible writing, just to make a side point, and then we'll get back on this. 
Uh, the reason given here for building the ark was what? To save his family. Well, okay. Didn't he also save uh, two of every kind of the animals? Yes, he did. Well, how come it doesn't mention that here? The impression you'd get if you want to be a hard-headed American here is you say, well, it says he built it to save his family. Therefore, <laughs> and here's where the bad logic comes in, therefore, he didn't build it to save them animals. Well, if you read this story, the animals are there. So what can we conclude? Oh, not every Bible author is trying to talk about everything, the complete unabridged story of everything that ever happened. So here the author wants to make a point about him saving his family. And is that true? Oh yeah, saved his family. But he doesn't mention other things. Well, the reason I wanted to stop and make this point is this happens a lot. The Bible talks about a bunch of things where it doesn't tell us everything about those things. In fact, one thing I want to talk about soon is how uh, I'd like to someday list the things that, that are in the Bible that are only mentioned one time. And if it's in there only once, uh, you wouldn't know about it at all if that one time weren't there either. You understand what I'm saying? I can find you lots of passages about Jesus being in Jerusalem, for example. Lots and lots and lots. Okay, great. But what if there were only one? Would that mean, well, uh, he must not have really been in Jerusalem because if he really were, it would mention it at least, and then what number do we put in the blank? At least seven times. Yeah, seven's the right number. Once the Bible mentions something seven times, then you can really count on it, right? Well, that, of course, is silly thinking. But a lot of people do mental tricks like that that keep them from understanding the Bible. And somebody might take a passage like this and try to prove, well, it says here he did it to save his family. Mm. Well, he also did it because God told him to. Didn't God tell him? Well, yes. And he did it to save the animals too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So the author here tells you one thing. It doesn't mean that other things don't exist. And that's my point in passing. That's just a little bonus point, sort of separate from the main message of this discussion today. So we go on. He, uh, he created this ark. He built the ark to save his family. By his faith, this is Noah, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. Hmm. Okay, let's unpack this a little bit. First of all, he condemned the world. By his faith, he condemned well, that's not the flowery language of the local church because believers aren't supposed to condemn people. So what's going on here? This is different from what we might expect. It, for instance, we might expect a passage, by his faith he blessed the world and became heir of righteousness and so forth. But it doesn't say blessed, he condemned in fact, if you go back and read it, Noah, it appears Noah alone and his family were pleasing to God, and that was it. Things had gotten so bad that Noah's the only one that God thinks is worth saving um, among those living at that time. 
Hmm. Imagine the one faithful man surrounded by a sea of other unfaithful, ungodly, wicked people. In fact, so wicked that God had regretted that he'd ever made mankind. You think Noah was happy to live in his day? You think he went around every day, oh, what a, what a great country we live in, what a great culture and society, and oh, how blessed I am to be among these many fine people. No, not at all, to the contrary. And this man was building that boat for a long time. And I think about our own political situation and how we ought to be able to relate uh, somewhat, if you are righteous and honest and responsible and rational, you should be right now probably pretty upset about what all is going on in the culture around you, even among those who are in the good party with you, whichever party you may be in, if you're in one. I'm not in either party nor any other. Uh, but, you know, you don't get in a party if you don't think it's a pretty good one. And chances are you're pretty upset now with other people in your own party because you've seen some bad thinking, some bad acting, and so forth. Uh, and I don't care which party you're in. That ought to be true right now. And so think about Noah, who's surrounded by, like, pretty much everybody else in the world. God says it's time for them to drown. <laughs> so... Noah gets a pretty good commendation from God that he gets to get on the ark. And so he becomes the heir of righteousness that is in the keeping with faith. So there's some manner of reward here for those who stay righteous. And Noah became an heir of that. Now it goes on. By faith, Abraham, this is verse 8, when called to go to a place he would re later receive as his inheritance... He obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. Notice that idea of being a stranger in a place you don't know. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. So much to say here. One thing, let me just say real quick about this last verse. Anytime the stars in the sky are mentioned in scriptures, you need to wonder, hey, is this one of those literal mentions? Or is this one of those places like in Revelation 1.20, where we're told that certain stars are actually angels, not that the the twinkle, twinkle thing in the sky is an angel, but that the word star is used to refer to angels, angelic beings, lesser Elohim, however you want to refer to them. Are we supposed to think of that here? Well, that's a very good question. And you can ponder that. We'll talk about that some other day. 
But this main discussion about Abraham, starting in verse 8 and going through uh, 12, this is the basis of a book that I really want to write. I've been wanting to write it for several years now. And my working title is When Faith Was Rational. Let's read it again. Verse 8, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. Okay, why did Abraham go? He went because God called him. God said, go. Abraham went. I submit to you that this is rational faith. Okay, I have a command here from Yahweh, the Creator, the Most High God. I'm going to do what he says. This is very rational. This jibes with the real world. This maps accurately onto reality. God said, do it. I'm going to go do that. And we see that Sarah's position was similar and all these other people's positions were similar. And we'll read some more about that as we go in this very chapter. But this is when it was rational. What a lot of people to do, do today is not rational. Oh, we're so blessed to build this $9.7 million sanctuary to the glory of God. And we have faith that God will bless our efforts. Really? Did God tell you to build a $9.7 million sanctuary to his glory? Well, we like to think he did, Jack. <laughs> yes, I'm sure you do like to think he did. Let me ask you, how did he tell you? Did he send an angel? No. Did he write it in scripture for you? No. Did he, um, how about a voice from heaven? Did that happen? No. Okay. So how did God tell you? Well, and of course, here's how you get in all, all the voodoo that, that people do. Well, we felt led in our hearts to do this. They might say, oh, God put it on our hearts to build this new sanctuary. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, God does this for you often. Oh, sure. He puts all kind of stuff on our hearts. Okay. And how does that always work out? Because when you hired Brother Larry last year, uh, that you think God put that on your hearts, he wanted you to do that. But then it turned out that Larry was into this and that other crime and really nasty stuff. And it was very hurtful and a lot of people were damaged by it. Are you going to tell me that God wanted that? Well, yeah, actually, I choose to believe that God did want that for some reason. I know it's mysterious, Jack, but yeah, he, yeah, he, we asked for his guidance and that's what we got. That's what we did. And even if we can't figure it out, well, this is still, <laughs> well, okay. So now you have a God who does some things that sure seem pretty wacky as far as causing the very kinds of harm that so many of the letters are written to condemn. And yet you're telling me God was behind it. He put it on your hearts. And this same God has told you to build this sanctuary and to go into debt to do it. Well, I don't think that God actually told you that. I think you've imagined that. Abraham did not imagine this. God appeared to him and told him, 
these things? And Abraham said, yes, sir. Yavol. <laughs> and so this is what he did. He did not imagine these things as so many people do today. Oh, I'm feeling the call to go into the ministry. Wow, if God wants you in the ministry, does he have no better way to tell you this than through your feelings? My brother-in-law uh, says this funny thing. I think it's been passing through his family for a long time about that the... Uh, the full-time ministry has ruined many a good auto mechanic. Meaning that it's a bit like the Peter principle, actually, that uh, people tend to get promoted beyond their level of uh, competence. And that here's a guy who does a great job as a mechanic and he's great to work with, helps a lot of people. They're blessed by his skills and he's blessed with a good career. But no, going to ruin that and go into the ministry where he's not so good because he felt the call or something like this, this is not rational. It is not honest. It is not responsible. Who says, hey, I'm going to go into the ministry. Look, God has not told me this. He's not appeared to me. He's not sent me an angel. I've heard no voice from heaven. Uh, so I can't say God's calling me into it. I think it's a great idea. It's something I want to do. It means a lot to me. I'd love to invest myself in this way to sacrifice some things in my life for this kind of a dream. And so this is what I'm going to do. Well, anybody could say that. And that could be true all day long. But uh, so many, no, no, God called me. I felt the call. Hmm. I think you're cheating. I think you're lying. I mean, you may have felt something, but you're telling me it was God. I don't think you're in a spot to know that, and I think you know and should know that you're not in a spot to know that. And then, if you're like so many, and we look at the fruit of your ministry, there will be a lot of bad fruit in it, and we're supposed to believe that's from God and this is His will for his church, I don't think that's rational. Abraham had an actual call from God, an actual visitation. It's fascinating. Go read the story. Genesis chapter 12, read on for several chapters. A bunch of it's about Abraham. You get to 18 and 19. He has these visitors who come. Turns out to be God and God and an angel or something like that. <laughs> it's, uh, you have to sort of wrestle with what's going on. It, it calls them men, but it also calls them angels. And then, oh, suddenly one of them is, quote, the Lord. Um, so, hey, uh, and a lot of this is what they call the, it, it's the, the two Yahwehs or the, the, the two uh, powers uh, doctrine and it's about Jesus' appearances in the Old Testament. It's fascinating stuff. Wish I knew more about it. So he actually got a call and he actually went. A lot of people today who go, they don't have a call. They just imagined it. And then, of course, we're supposed to go along with whatever they tell us because, hey, God called me, so therefore I must be right about everything I'm telling you. Nope, not everything. 
seen that happen too many times just to believe in that based on somebody say so. So, uh, so, so let's go on with Abraham. Verse 9, By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. Here's this theme again. Uh, stranger, I don't belong here. Well, you do belong here because God said you're going to be here. Yeah, okay, there was that, sure. But this theme that God puts a man on this planet and he's not living in euphoria, in, in utopia. And he's not living in ecstasy and, oh, what a grand situation this is. No, Abraham was like a stranger in a foreign country. And this is a theme throughout. And I can show you this theme from some places in the Bible you would never expect to find it. Uh, and we'll do that, but not today, as McGonagall says. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. This is the heavenly Jerusalem. This is the holy city. This is the Mount Zion 2.0. Not the version in Jerusalem, but the heavenly version. Now, let me stop here and acknowledge there is much disagreement. A bunch of people today think that at the end of the story, God brings heaven to earth and somehow parks it down here and changes everything, and that's how it's all played out. And they'll point especially to the verse, and I saw the holy city coming down, and they, they put a lot of eggs in that coming down basket, as if this means, oh yes, coming down and staying down forever permanently. I don't think it means that. I don't find it convincing. We can talk about that much later and other evidences uh, for all of this. This is one of the things I want to get to, especially if the audience is really trying to be honest, rational, and responsible. <laughs> Otherwise, you just blow it off. Well, I don't like that. I don't want to believe that. I'll just believe whatever I want. And so I feel like I'm wasting my time. Uh, verse 11. And by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was unable to bear children because she considered him faithful who made the promise. Did she have an actual promise from God? Yes. Today. Somebody, let's call her Betty, says, oh, I know that I will finally have children, even though I haven't been able to so far. Okay, Betty, how do you know this? Well, because of God's promise. Okay, what promise did God make you, Betty? Oh, well, it's in Hebrews 11, the promise to Sarah. See, he promised her, ergo, um, he's practically promised me too. Now, I hope that you see a problem with that. This is not good logic. This does not beat the uh, standards, uh, best practices of logical thinking. If you can't find the fallacy in that, it is basically like all other fallacies. It is a um, oh my, what's the word? <laughs> That's funny. This is why we write things down, Jack. Um, I, I've, I've I've lost my mind, but it does not follow. And and I'll come back later and remember this very basic logic word that everybody uses all the time. And my aren't I embarrassed? But hey, this is what happens sometimes. So 
Anyway, logically, it does not work for somebody who doesn't have the promise just to assume that they do. And uh, so verse 12, and so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the countless sand on the seashore. So these two people, Abraham and Sarah, they had real promises from the real God, put in real words, right in their real company, face to face, and they acted on that, and that is called faith. And people since then have acted on the same promises that were made to Abraham. Do you understand that? We uh, Descendants of Abraham in the faith, I'm, I'm not talking about uh, uh genealogical Jews, I'm talking about people who buy into the same faith. They also buy into the same promises uh, that Abraham bought in, at least the big ones. Am I saying then, oh, well, so all women should expect to have children in their old age if they want? No, 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 no. God did not tell you to go where he told Abraham to go. But the bigger promises about inheriting righteousness and this this a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. That's what I'm talking about. Verse 13, and all these people were still living by faith when they died. And that's a good thing. They, they, hang, they hung on to the faith and they did not let it go. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance admitting they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Did you notice how Abraham was taken to a land that it says, uh, let's see, uh, he, he wouldn't obey it even though he did not know where he was going. This is verse 8. Uh, By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. Uh, he was looking forward to a city. Well, when did he ever live there? And a lot of people look at this and say, oh, yeah, we'll see later in the story, Jack. At the end, God brings heaven down to Jerusalem, and that's where they have the big thing, and Abraham gets to live there. Okay, hold your finger there. We'll get back to that later. So now we're back down in verse 13, uh, that these people were still hanging on to this faith, to this hope. That is, they had a promise, so they had this expectation that God would do as God had promised, and this is highly rational, and they, hang, they hung on to this in their minds. And they welcomed from a distance, even though they did not see it in their own lifetimes. So the promise was not about something that was going to happen in their lifetimes. Not this promise, not this promise of this holy city, this city of God. And it says at the end of 13, that they were admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Hey, we don't belong here. Yeah, we're here, and yeah, God put us here. Yeah, okay, it's not like this is a mistake, but we're not here for here. We're here for there. We're not here for now. We're here for later. Now, you may think I'm an idiot. But when I try to take in everything the scriptures say about God putting man here and now, I think this is an audition for the afterlife. Obviously, he's looking for faithful people as opposed to unfaithful people. 
Not everybody gets chosen. Okay. Even uh, many are called, but few are chosen. It says in another place. So I think it's an audition. I don't think everybody gets to go to that next world. And I can read you a boatload of passages that say that. And so these people, uh, and I love verse 14. Well, verse 13, they admitted that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. We don't fit in here. Now, verse 14, people who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. They could have gone back to that any day. A lot of the Israelites did that coming out of Egypt. Well, hey, uh, didn't we eat better than this back in Egypt, they said. (laughs) And God is, uh, I imagine him shaking his head. Oh, my. These people so don't get it, right? They're not willing to put up with a little trek across the desert tide to get to the promised land, uh, even though the promised land isn't the ultimate promised land that I'm promising, right? And they even regretted that trip and wanted to go back to Egypt and be in slavery again. And so, uh, verse 15 again, if they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had an opportunity to, to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now, we're not done here. But let me stop right here and ask you. Do you believe that there's a city prepared for you? Do you believe in this heavenly Jerusalem, this holy city? Do you believe that when you're done here, and you are going to be done here, you are going to die? There are only two people who ever didn't die, and they would still have a death coming because it's appointed for man to die once and then the judgment. So Elijah and Enoch also had to die. And then we can discuss sometime the timing of that. Is that yet future? Did that already happen? There are people on both sides of that. We'll talk about that some other day. But uh, therefore God is not ashamed to call them their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This should bring to your mind John 14, when Jesus says to the apostles, hey, don't be afraid. Uh, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I will come back and get you, he says. He doesn't say, I will come back and be with you forever here. No, I will come back and get you so that you may be where I am, he says. This is why, in part, it's only part of the evidence, why I do not believe that heaven on earth is the end of the story, but heaven in heaven is the end of the story, and we get to leave this world and go to that one. And if you're interested uh, in more about that from another source that's extra biblical, you can read one that is in the Apocrypha. It's called To Esdras, which is Latin for Ezra, uh, E-S-D-R-A-S, To Esdras. And you can read chapter 7 in its entirety. Pretty fascinating passage. Uh, You can read especially verses 76 through 101, I believe. And you can find that on uh, Bible Gateway in the Common English Bible. 
you can look up two Esdras there. It's included in that collection, though it's not in every Bible collection. All right, I'm going to break in at this point and um, stop it here for this uh, part A. There's about an hour left in the discussion, and that will be in episode 19, part B. So go listen right now, and we'll finish up there. Thanks for joining in.